zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Final Exam, released June 5th, 1981. It was written and directed by Jimmy Houston and released by Motion Picture Marketing. The story of this film coming together is about as exciting as math homework. Producer Myron Meisel contacted a distributor first, Motion Picture Marketing, to determine which release date was the most likely to earn a successful box office take, <laughs> aiming for February of 1981, which if you'll notice, they missed by four months with their wide release. It's also only Plus or minus. slightly different Later. than the, the producers that go and be like, what would make the best toy? Let's make that yeah, into a movie. Exactly. <laughs> They also looked at statistics regarding profitability by genre and found that terror suspense had the best rate of return. Next, they selected a shooting location based entirely on the available tax breaks in the region, settling on Shelby, North Carolina. Lastly, they decided on a story. <laughs> to cut corners further, they produced the film Non-Union because of the 1980 SAG strike. Most of the crew were friends or students of director Jimmy Houston's. The film was a first feature credit for most of the cast, and also a last feature credit for most of the cast. The film was shot in sequence so they could excuse actors on the day their characters died in the film. On set, the cast started a tradition of singing Queen's Another One Bites the Dust every time a new actor was wrapped slash killed. Yeah, but there's like, that seems weird to me because they shot it in sequence, but there's huge like... 45 50 minutes where nobody Nobody's dies yeah. yeah but like, there's people disappearing that whole time i i guess maybe but like, like the sheriff turns around to drive away and just never comes back or the doctor turns around and walks down a hall and just never comes back that that's fair but i'm like if you're trying to get rid of people sooner you could have spread the kills out a yeah, little bit for sure wow now okay being a producer myself <laughs> I am not going to totally rag on producers for making those kinds of choices because I think that they are no, they're valid. fiscally responsible choices to make when making a movie. But start with a decent script that also doesn't have to cost you a lot of money right. to read a whole bunch of scripts and find a good one before you start looking for all these other good choices. Yeah, I honestly, I don't fault anybody for, for doing that math in terms of where are we going to shoot it? What genre should it be and stuff like that. Yeah. But- but you need to have a script first before you're deciding the release date. Yeah, and but there's there's and there's plenty, plenty of desperate writers out there that will sell you a decent script for not very much money. Yeah. But I could write myself and then direct myself. Oh, that's true. They shot in 6 weeks on a budget of $363,000, but it brought in 1.3 million because of the dearth of films as a result of so, the SAG strike. Success. Yeah, it paid for itself. Director Jimmy Houston has said it was his intention to avoid the cliches of most slasher films by focusing on the lives of the characters and less on the gore and violence. I would say that he both failed to avoid those tropes 
but that somehow that the, still didn't save the film. But he missed the point of why these films were... I'm going to pick a genre that's super successful and then not use the things that are typical of that genre? Yeah. Like, I'm going to make a love story, but there's not a couple in it. What? Yeah. Wait, wait, what? There's not, like, a, a dude that you're going to fall in love with or anything? Okay, you're missing the point of a genre here. Yeah. Kill people. What do people <laughs> like to eat? Cake. All right. I want to avoid the cake tropes. Let's make this one with sand. <laughs> no. The director has said that he was actually shooting for a PG to maximize profits and was disappointed when the first cut came back with an X rating for violence. <laughs> a PG? Yeah. What? I mean, no. literally nobody, there's no one in the market for a PG horror film. Yeah. Nobody wants to see that. Right, because the because the the younger generation that wants to see it doesn't want to see it because yeah, it's R rated. Doesn't want to see it because it's tame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doesn't want. They don't want to get into something they can get into. They right. want to have to sneak in. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess there is something to be said of like the R.L. Stein kind of thing. Like, sure, but that's that's a whole different genre of horror. Like, you don't make a slasher film. Like, I don't remember any R.L. Stein movie where someone got stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> The poster isn't terrible, but it's almost exactly a duplicate of the Friday the 13th poster from last year. Somehow, this is still a Category 3 video nasty, despite the almost complete absence of blood for the entire film. I've I've just lost all respect for the video nasty list. (laughs) The film was released alongside a novelization by Jeffrey Meyer in 1981 that makes some effort to explain the motive of the killer, which the film never bothers with. <laughs> yeah, like seriously, I was five minutes from the end, and I'm like, they're going to explain this, right? They're going to tell me who this guy is that we've been following the entire time and why he's doing this, and you're like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> we start at dawn overlooking a quiet lakeside college campus, and a sound-alike for John Carpenter's Halloween score starts up. Yeah. <laughs> my, one of my first notes is totally not the Halloween score. Yeah. Also, I was very upset by the opening credits where it said starring and only listed two names and then went to the rest of the crew. It was like, yeah. oh, this is going to be an interesting yeah, horror film. It wasn't just starring. It was introducing for yeah. both of those names. <laughs> it's like, there's only two people in this movie, apparently. We cut for some reason to nighttime at March College as a couple, Dana and John, make out in an open convertible. Dana is suddenly creeped out by the location and isn't interested in making out. John tries to compromise by agreeing to put the top up, and they're back to necking, but Dana would like to relocate somewhere more private. She confesses her love to John, and he's reluctant to reciprocate, but when he finally does, they move to the back seat. Dana suddenly hears something, and from outside the car we see a silhouette approach the vehicle. The car is getting jostled from side to side by whoever is outside, and John assumes that it's his teammates fucking with him. He threatens to exit the car and beat them up, when out of nowhere, a man's face peers upside down through the windshield and then he spins around on the hood of the car to slash open the rag top with a knife dana is screaming and john hops in the front seat to start the car like that's his first instinct is like Mm -hmm. i need to drive now i don't think that's a terrible instinct well i I just think it's a weird choice like oh time to go like instead of let's just get out of this car and run yeah and i mean and hopefully he would have the forethought to put it into reverse so the guy would just fall off? Yeah, fl- and fall yeah. off. falling into the car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dana is screaming, and John starts the car, but he barely makes it 10 feet before the killer yanks him up out of the car onto the hood, stabbing him repeatedly. When he's done, he turns to face the still-screaming Dana, and we dip to black. Is the car still moving? 
It was moving for a little bit, and then I guess he died enough that he took his foot off the gas, and maybe it's on an incline, so it didn't idle any further. Okay. I don't know. It seems like it stopped. So to be clear, the first thing we see is the killer's face dead on. So there are no red herrings in this film moving forward, because the first thing you saw of the killer was his face looking at them through the windshield. They don't, yeah. They don't bother to hide it at all. But I did spend the entire rest of the movie waiting for, be like, well, clearly we know who the killer is, and it's none of these people, so right. wh- when are you going to tell me who it is? Yeah. I never find out. <laughs> <laughs> we come back up on Lanier College, at least that's what the titles would have us believe, but one of the buildings is clearly labeled Limestone College. IMDB says they got some exteriors at Limestone College in South Carolina, but the majority was shot on the campus of Isothermal Community College in North Carolina. I loved that name. Isothermal. (laughs) Isothermal. Doesn't that mean it's like same temperature? What does that mean? And the rival Exothermal College. Inside McWilliams Tower, one of the buildings on campus, we see a student named Courtney studying on the top floor until a bell rings and she moves down some stairs according to the novelization she spends her time up here talking with an owl at Aww. the top of the tower i would have liked to have seen that and it doesn't make it into the movie we tilt down on two girls walking to a history test and complaining that studying is hard because they keep getting distracted by sexy boys behind them we see a kid named mark sneak up on courtney to ask how prepared she is for the chemistry exam he's panicking because if he doesn't score an 82 or higher he fails the course, and his parents will stop making his car payments. How did you learn that this character's name was Mark? It was not easy, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. Because <laughs> I was like, I was like, I just kept when, when, when I'm making my notes, I make them in in line with the movie. I yeah. try not to look. So it was like when I, a new character comes in, and I was like, I hope they say his name. In the meantime, I just put like a placeholder of X or yeah. Guy X. So he's Guy X throughout my entire notes. Yeah, I had to put on my my Deerstalker cap, and I had to do some (laughs) deduction. And I took every name that's mentioned on IMDb, and I was like, he's the character whose name doesn't get said. (laughs) Apparently, it does get said once in the movie, but it's it's three seconds before the end of his screen time. So it's just like, okay, well, whatever. But I figured it out. It's Mark. Mark and Courtney are interrupted when a kid named Radish walks up with an armful of books and a pocket protector to spread the latest gossip about March College. What happened at March College? Another football recruiting scandal? No, better. A mass murderer. Mark appropriately ridicules Radish for referring to a double kill as mass murder. Currently, the FBI defines a mass murder as the killing of four or more people during an event with no cooling off period between murders. Can I make fun of you for calling it a... What did you say? A double a, kill? A double kill? That's the technical term. I learned it from Halo. A double kill. Yeah, when you kill two people, it's a double kill. <laughs> okay. I'm talking from the killer's perspective. If you're talking about investigatory terms, it would be a double a du- homicide. double homicide. <laughs> I believe. Double murder, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I call it a double kill when I'm the one doing it, I mean. Got it. Okay, that explains it. I am no longer ridiculing you. <laughs> <laughs> you better not be. Because I'm looking to score a double kill. Oh, God. (laughs) Two lousy people? I call that a piker. Well, it's a small school. You have to enter that into the equation. Courtney's a little disgusted with how callously the guys talk about murder, but weirdly, they never let her finish a sentence here. Every time she opens her mouth, one of them just launches into his next point over her. Oh, you're beyond that. And, to top it all off, the guy was their first string quarterback. You know, I think that we... Now you're talking. Radish even mentions another case of students being murdered in Vermont and suspects it's the same guy. A jock wearing a jersey with the name Wildman across the back 
races by and knocks all of Radish's books to the ground. It might also be on the front. It's on the front, yeah, yeah. for sure. Wildman turns back to Radish and mimics a baby crying for a second before continuing to class. Radish's friends Courtney and Mark laugh at his misfortune while he collects his things. Courtney at least helps pick them up, but Mark just leaves them both behind. (laughs) Don't be late, Braino. We get a POV shot of someone driving a van around campus under ominous music. In the chemistry class, the instructor, Dr. Reynolds, a dead ringer for Kurt Vonnegut, informs them all that he will step out of the room for the duration of the exam. But his aides will be watching for cheaters. And uh, they are both frustrated Nazis. Yeah, and not only will he be walking out for the rest of the exam, he'll also be walking out for the rest of their school year. Yeah, he, he says, doesn't even say goodbye, and he never comes back. Well, but, but, but no, he does. Like, he says, like, you know, he's like, you know, have a good summer. He says something yeah. like that. Like, he's like, oh, you're just never going to see these students again? Okay. Yeah. He's not going to grade these papers, and he'll never see the students again. Reynolds jokes that he hired a sniper waiting in the campus tower to start shooting at anyone who shares answers. A hilarious reference to Charles Whitman, the famous perpetrator of the 1966 tower shooting on the campus of the University of Texas. Radish can't help but gush about Whitman's skill with a rifle. Outside the classroom, Dr. Reynolds bumps into a girl named Lisa, and they walk together to his office. When the door is closed, it becomes clear that this is a student he's romantically involved with. I don't care who knows around here, but if that red-headed wife of mine ever finds out, I'm dead. And I was sure the only reason he would mention her hair color is because she's going to show up somewhere in the movie. <laughs> but no, this is just the line getting tossed off for no reason. We need to add some character to his wife. What if she had red hair and he said it aloud? Well, she's not in the movie. Does that really make a difference? Just have him say it. It's good for his character. Lisa makes a joke at this unseen wife's expense, calling her a sagging old lady. She must be almost 30 by now. Hey, wait a minute. Almost 30, meaning late 20s. And this teacher looks at least mid-40s to me. Lisa demands a late-night tryst this evening in the art studio, and Reynolds eventually agrees. We see the van's POV again as it approaches the building where the chemistry test is currently happening. Radish finishes the test first, eliciting a groan from his classmates. I can't help it. I'm brilliant. He's followed quickly by Wild Man. Uh. (laughs) I can't help it because I'm offensive. I guess they couldn't think of anything offensive for him to do, so they just had him let us know. (laughs) As Wild Man moves through the quad, he is shoved hard to the ground by the coach who is testing his reflexes. The coach criticizes Wild Man for not being prepared for the attack, and then criticizes the nearby Radish for taking too long with his equipment inventories. He mentions that some of their equipment seems to be missing, but I don't think this detail ever pays off in any way. No. Nope. Courtney is next to finish her test, but when we cut back to the van, we can now see that its passengers are wearing balaclavas and armed with rifles. Courtney says goodbye to some classmates who are apparently packing to leave school in the event that they've failed their exams, I guess. Like, a lot of these kids seem prepared to never come back because they think they did that poorly on their final exams. And there are still exams the next day. Yeah. Like, th- this is the day before the last set of exams right, or but last before exam. The final exam. Ah, right. But, yeah, and Courtney makes the point later, like, I was stupid to schedule my classes this way because everyone else got to leave days early, which is just, you know, shorthand for, we couldn't afford extras on this movie. That's why there's no one on this campus. Well, and they needed to make sure that every time somebody ran around looking for help, for some reason, the campus is empty. Right. Mm-hmm. All the time. Every time. <laughs> The van full of gunmen empty into the quad and spray their guns at students leaving the building. 
Three or four kids collapse to the ground in blood-stained shirts while the rest scream and run for cover. Radish is shocked to be part of a real school shooting. Back in the classroom, the remaining test takers are distracted by the screams and gunshots while Mark discreetly pulls out a red pen and fake grades his own test, circles an 82 at the top of the page, and sneaks it under a stack of graded papers on an aide's desk. The shooters start collecting the dead students from the grass and loading them back into the van before speeding away. Radish books it to an office to phone the police, reporting the shooting directly to the local sheriff. Jack, this is Lanier College Hog. There's been a multiple shooting on the campus quadrangle. Sir, listen, several students have been shot and kidnapped in a brown van. You've got to get out here. It's happening. The psychopaths are here. Is quadrangle the official long term of quad? I mean, quadrangle refers to any four-sided shape. Okay. So, but but when they when when you say the campus quad, is that actually short for campus quadrangle? I guess <laughs> it will be forever in my head now. Yeah, <laughs> because like like CSUN had what I would call a quad. Well, every school has a quad, every? and they're all quadrangles. <laughs> I guess there it is. A terrified student named Elizabeth doesn't understand how Courtney and Lisa could be laughing after the attack, but Courtney explains that the van had a Gamma fraternity sticker in the back window. Did you guys see a sticker? Because I looked for it on a rewatch and I don't see a sticker. It must be very small if it's there. Yeah, I didn't see anything. Either way, I don't know why a sticker means that this was a false flag situation because isn't it just as likely that these Gamma guys finally went postal and just killed a bunch of people on the campus? I guess it's just funnier when it's people you know doing the killing. Quad is an abbreviation most commonly short for quadrangle, a kind of four-sided courtyard usually defined by a large lawn and surrounded by buildings. And three or four dead students. There it is. I learned something today. There you go. We see the van skidding down a dirt road and it pulls over. All the dead bodies were accomplices to the prank, which itself was meant as a distraction so that Mark could cheat on his test. Courtney and Lisa head to the cafeteria where they're joined at a table by Mark, Janet, and Janet's boyfriend, Pledge Gary, who's credited as Pledge Gary. (laughs) And as far as I can tell, he's the only pledge to the Gamma fraternity. I do, though, appreciate that through most of this film, he wears a shirt that just says Gary on it. Him and Wildman are making it easy. (laughs) Yeah. But Mark here is trying to be the dark horse. No idea who this guy is. Mark tells the pledge that they have an assignment for him, and Gary pushes back briefly until he's threatened with not making the fraternity. Although this is like the second to last day of school. (laughs) Are you going to make the fraternity at the last second? He drags Gary outside and tells him that he's been selected to steal Dr. Mayhern's upcoming test from his office. Gary is worried about getting expelled, but they're soon joined by Wild Man, and together they're able to talk Gary into the assignment. When Gary returns to the cafeteria, Janet wants to hear about his mission, but he won't share it. He offers to tell her a different secret, but not in front of everyone. Janet turns to look at Courtney like, go the fuck away so I can hear my secret. And Courtney walks her lunch tray over to an electric dumbwaiter to return it. We follow the tray down into the kitchen area where we see a guy clearing trays and then taking out the trash. And we follow this guy with some trash bags (laughs) out to the dumpster (laughs) where we see the man accidentally cross paths with Courtney. And now we're following her again. She almost crashes into another student And I think this was supposed to be a jump scare, but it doesn't really work at all because they barely cross each other and there's no like sting with it. It's just two people walking past each other. She walks past a van and we see the driver open the door. This is not the van from the shooting because it's black, not brown. 
and we hold on it for a while, so I think this is to imply that this is the killer's vehicle. Yeah. Do we ever see this vehicle again in the whole movie? Uh, no. What was the point of this, then? Just let us know that the killer has arrived. But- On campus. Do we see it after the first kill, maybe? We don't see it at all. No, because it just, uh, I don't know. There's just one time that we see it, and it's right here, and it's so close to being the same color as the other van that was important to the plot. It's like, why make them the same kind of vehicle? Well, because I think, uh, I think before the shooting, we see a van pull up, and I think that that, through the magic of editing, um, the oh, are they are we seeing both vans pull up? Yes, and cutting back and forth. Correct. I think I think we see the killer van arrive, pull in, but then. A little, another scene happens, and when we come back outside, we're seeing the other van oh pulling God. up to the square. That's definitely quadrangle. Worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> this whole sequence serves literally no purpose except explaining to people how a dumbwaiter works so we aren't confused later. Spoiler alert, I will still be confused later. It's very clear that they're just stretching for time because if you took all the useless scenes out of this movie, it would only be 25 minutes long. For the record, so far, the only scenes where anything mattered were... The couple getting killed at the start, the fake shooting, and Gary getting his assignment. But everything else has just been people talking and stuff that doesn't pay off. Mm -hmm. We cut to the sheriff arriving on campus. Just one car, one cop, responding to a multiple shooter situation with automatic (laughs) weapons. You know, it was a different time. (laughs) Yeah. He seems furious that there are no dead students strewn about the area. And we better find a multiple shooting or somebody going to wish that a multiple shooting was all the troubles he had man does this not age well no it's uh a little bit upsetting how cavalier and funny they find all this yes radish fesses up that he made the call but that the shooting appears to have been a prank the sheriff asks him to explain what happened and radish uses very precise and accurate wording to summarize a group of masked perpetrators simulated a terrorist style raid in which several co-conspirators pretended injury or death. It's not my fault. Even the sheriff doesn't buy this dialogue coming from a random college student. Where'd you learn to talk like that? <laughs> Watching Dragnet. <laughs> Wildman wanders up to help the sheriff pick on Radish, but then Radish hands over the license plate number to the van, and Wildman shuts up and backs away. The sheriff has dispatch run the plates, MPM 112, presumably a reference to distributor motion picture marketing. These are the kinds of references you can only make if you pick your distributor first. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're assuming that this is the 112th project from them. I tried to find a list, but it turns out when you Google motion picture marketing, even if you put quotes around it, it just tells you about (laughs) motion picture marketing, which is a thing on its own. They have a real SEO problem. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's probably why they don't exist anymore. The plates come back as belonging to John Chambliss, which is also the name of an executive producer on the film. The sheriff is able to guess that Mr. Chambliss is Wildman's father, but Mark steps in to insist it was a harmless prank to let off steam. Coach wanders up, addressing the sheriff by his first name, Quentin, and talks to him like an old friend. He reminds Sheriff Quentin that as a youth, he set fire to the school library and hid the fire hose because he used to be fun. The sheriff warns Wildman not to fuck up again, or he will disappear in the prison system. Suddenly, a fucking Maytag repairman wanders up. (laughs) I guess he's supposed to be campus security, but he tries to pull jurisdictional bullshit on the actual county sheriff. Mm -hmm. It's very weird. He's like, I keep this campus real safe. And it's like, okay, well, someone called the police about a shooting here today, and I responded to it before you did. Right. 
The sheriff leaves, and the campus guard, Mitch, reminds Coach that they plan on going hunting in the morning. We see Courtney returning to the dorms, and legs step into the foreground to watch her. Just legs, no body connected, no, it's out of frame. Lisa walks into the room they share, and tells Courtney that studying is a waste of time because grades only matter in school, forgetting apparently that they are both currently enrolled in school. Yeah, but good grades can't hurt. Neither can good times. Lisa says it's more important to know what you want and how to get it. As an example, she collars two guys out of the hall with her wily womanly ways and enlists them as helpers to carry a bunch of shit down to her car. Courtney wanders over to Radish's room to ask for aspirin and have a chat. He has posters in his room for The Corpse Grinders and Murder Is My Beat. Courtney complains that everything is easy for Lisa because she's so attractive, and Radish tells Courtney that she's not giving herself enough credit. But also, I think that if Courtney ever went out into the hallway and said, hey guys, can you help me move some stuff? People would help. They would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's just not using her powers. I, I'm not talking about powers. Ask for That's help powers. and you'll get it. <laughs> not always. No, but I'm just saying, I don't think that you have to be a beautiful woman to have a guy help you with your luggage. No, you just have to be a woman. <laughs> if I go out in the hallway and I say, help, and they say, fuck you, and punch me in the head. <laughs> and then I'll turn to someone else and say, help, he's punching me, and then they'll punch me. It's a vicious circle. I've been caught in it's it a, a few times. <laughs> it's a vicious quadrangle. <laughs> Courtney returns to her room, and we see a silhouette watch her pass by from a stairwell. In the room, Lisa is gone, and Courtney's things have been moved. When she returns, Lisa says it wasn't her, and when she moves to open the closet, Courtney's book falls from its perch, balanced on the door, and she screams. <laughs> like how do you this, even do that? Like, how do you get a book to fall out of the closet like that? It was, it was balanced on the door, so when she went to open the door, it just fell oh, off. Oh, I thought it was in the closet and just, like, fell out of the closet. I'm like, how would you even do that? <laughs> but she screams like a cat jumped out at her, mm -hmm. or, or a murderer. <laughs> But it was just a book that fell. Like, whenever I open a closet and a book falls out of me, I just go, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but also, did the killer do this? And if yeah. so, why? I just want to see... I, I was really hoping at the end of the movie we'd get, like, a montage of, like, him doing all the killings from his perspective and then just one shot of him on his tippy toes just balancing <laughs> a book on a closet door. It, it, it reminded me of MacGruber's You're All Away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the one cup of yeah. water. Janet comes into the room to share a secret with Courtney. She and Gary are going steady now, and he gave her his pledge pin as an indication of their relationship. Okay, hold on. She doesn't say she gave me... She doesn't say that she received his pledge pin. They said, you got pinned. Yeah, she and says, I, he pinned I just, me. I just assumed that that was a euphemism for sex. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay, that's what, that's what they're calling it. But then quickly I'm corrected to like, they just gave you a pledge pin. It's like, oh, An they, actual pin. Yeah. this is the PG version yeah. of getting pinned. They just gave you a pledge pin. And by that, I mean, he just pledged his penis into your body. God. <laughs> it's plunged. <laughs> oh, sorry. I mixed those words up. Right through my sweater. What? <laughs> Oh my God. I don't have time for you to take that thing off. It's not even the right half of my body. You gotta cut all this out. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time a girl was presented with a pin as a token of love? It was for their first anniversary. It looked like a one. 
Oh, the um, hard country? Yeah, it was a Lone Star beer. Lone Star beer bottle pen. Ugh. Gary's not allowed to have a girlfriend to join the frat, and if he does, they will tree him. That's why it's a secret. Lisa says that if he weren't embarrassed to be with her, he wouldn't keep it a secret. He just doesn't want to be tied to a tree and covered with ice until I can rescue him. For a moment, Janet panics because she can't find the pin, but Lisa finds it on the back of her sweater, indicating that she might not have been wearing it when Gary pinned her. I don't get this point. Who cares if she was wearing her sweater or when she was with her boyfriend or not? Well, I think that that means that they were fooling around when it happened. Okay. Isn't yeah. that what these characters do in their spare time? Yeah. They act like it's like some super embarrassing thing. And then Lisa's like, all right, off to fuck the professor. No, no. See, you don't understand. We're focusing more on the lives of these students. Oh, okay. And their plight versus the actual killer. Back in Radish's room, he's doing computer homework and listening to a record playing what sounds like Renfair-type fantasy music. It's awesome, and I want that record. (laughs) I googled the lyrics, and I had some trouble finding it, but we hear, Swift was the blade of the headman's sword, swinging in the rhythm of a just reward. Sharp was the edge of the guillotine, dripping with the memories of the people it had seen. Turns out it's an original song called The Executioner Song, written by composer Gary S. Scott, and it appears on the film soundtrack. Awesome. Though it's just those two lines twice. (laughs) That's the whole song. Wild Man kicks the door in and slaps the needle off the record player. He's pissed that Radish gave his plate numbers to the sheriff, and Radish pretends that there's no way he could have known who was responsible. While Wild Man roughs him up, Mark sneaks in to steal Radish's keys from a nightstand, where we can see that Radish has been reading Helter Skelter. There's also a poster on the wall for the toolbox murders behind him. We cut to Gary sneaking into Mr. Mayhern's office to collect the test tomorrow. When he comes to a locked door, he just climbs over the wall because this room has no ceiling. He just climbs over the wall. Yeah. What's the point of locking the door if he can climb over the wall? It makes it slightly more yeah, difficult. I guess. It, it's like, uh, remember that office in uh, the postman always rings twice? Sure. And they go to see the lawyer. And like, they can hear everything from all around you. Yeah. yeah. The same shape that's been spying on everybody walks past the office door outside Gary while he finds the test. As Gary sneaks back out of the building, test in hand, he is intercepted by the rest of the Gammas and congratulated for a successful heist. Unfortunately, they notice that his pledge pin has been given away to a girl. So, if you're caught without your pledge pin, they tie you to a tree. Why would you give your pledge pin to another person as a symbol of love if it had to be returned immediately or else you would be tied to a tree. No, because that's how much it, it proves. He's willing to risk being treed. That's what it means. That's yeah. how much I love you. I love you no, so much. It's not willing to risk it. It's willing to guarantee I'm going to give you this so that they will absolutely do this to me. Well, she had every intention of returning it to him. Like when she <laughs> thought she it lost it. Why give it to him at all? Because that's the whole point is that you're saying like, look, I love you so much that I'm going to spend the next eight hours in jeopardy until you give me this thing back. Okay. (laughs) That's what's happening. I'm not saying it makes a lot of sense. He is promptly treed in the front yard, meaning stripped down to his underwear and tied against a tree, sprayed with shaving cream and fire extinguishers, and then the guys dump ice into his underwear. He's left like that against the tree, and a nearby student, Elizabeth from earlier, offers to find Janet for him to cut him down. Yeah. First, she's cheering them on to tie him up. Right. And then later she says, oh, they, they've, they, the poor thing, they've tied him to a tree. It's like, you, you, you were helped. A, you did this. 
Hours later, we see Janet walking into Courtney's room, where she gets some mixed signals. Can I talk to you for a minute? Can't you see that I'm studying? She turns to leave, and Courtney calls after her. Janet! What's the matter with you? Um, you just told me to leave. Then Janet shares some equally mixed signals. You were so happy this afternoon. I'm still happy. It's just that I'm depressed. (laughs) What? (laughs) Janet is worried about what kind of a commitment she and Gary have made to each other. We cut back to Mark and Wildman in the Gamma House, and someone calls them about buying some speed. They're fresh out, but Mark asks about the pills that Coach keeps in the training room. Wildman says those are pain pills, but they stay behind a locked door. Mark tells him to knock the door down, and then they can plant Radish's car keys in the room to frame him. While Wildman and Mark are plotting here, Wildman puts on a shirt, deodorizes the outside of it, and then sprays the can in his mouth. Ugh. So Wait, so the keys... I thought the keys were to break into the the locker room. No, the keys were literally to frame Radish. But I assumed that I I feel like you are both correct. They're framing Radish because he has access because he does inventory for oh, the okay. coach. Okay. So they used his keys to get in, but they, but they were going to leave him behind yeah. so that it, they blamed him. Well, I mean, that's perfect. Like they can go ahead and smash up all the room and it says, why would I smash up the room if I have my keys? Clearly this wasn't me. Yeah. Wild Man does a celebratory dance for their brilliant plot before they get going. It's now pitch blackout and Gary is still tied to the tree, shivering in his ice-filled underwear. We hear twigs snap. It's been hours though, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So there's definitely no longer ice in his underwear. No, it's just cold water. Yeah. But he's for sure not going to have kids anymore. <laughs> We hear twigs snap, but it's not Janet. It's Mitch, campus security. Gary thinks he's saved, but Mitch is respectful of the fraternity's traditions and refuses to untie him, instead offering some liquor with the boy. You can have yours on the rock. <laughs> and he dumps it into the kid's underwear. At first I was worried he was just going to rape the kid here, <laughs> because when Gary offers to pay Mitch to untie him, he says, Pay me? With what? Your good looks? <laughs> Jesus, no. Money, please. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just thinking about, like, the ice water. It's like, you're not catching me at my best right now. (laughs) (laughs) Back in Courtney's room, Janet asks why Courtney never pledged, insisting sororities aren't all bad. But last year, a girl killed herself because a sorority wouldn't accept her. How awful. So clearly this would be the killer's motivation. If I were writing the movie, his sister killed herself, so he's here for revenge on right. whoever caused that or, to Or happen. the daughter. like Right, yeah, something like that. So I'm going to show my ignorance once again on this podcast today. Two times. When you have a fraternity, is there a sorority that matches those letters, or do sororities have different letters? They have different letters. They, okay, yeah. there's, no, there's never like, this is the fraternity of this... Of like gamma, I mean, delta, psi, and there's also a sorority th- for gamma. They're delta, sometimes psi. partnered. Yeah, I was gonna say okay. sometimes they they match up like the, like they, the lambda lambda lambdas and the omega moos. Yeah, partnered up. Right, like a, the you know they'll 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 have a tradition of being like a I don't know yeah like paired together, but they mm. don't have the same letters. Okay, although we did see I think in Terror Train last year that at the party for the fraternity that there were a lot of girls wearing the fraternity gear. They kind of like 
if their boyfriend is in that fraternity and they all hang out together, then they kind of consider themselves mm. a part of that fraternity, even if they're not technically I, married. I, I just didn't know if it was like they had just like split the group, like the fraternity and the sorority, but they're the same. Ultimately, they're under the same umbrella. No, I don't think so. Elizabeth, the girl in the SNL brand mom jeans who promised to find Janet for Gary, finally checks the dorms where all the girls live and finds Janet. Courtney has convinced Janet that frats are immature, so she hesitates to even rescue him, but then decides to go alone. Janet runs out into the night, and we cut to Gary shivering on the tree. We hear more twigs snapping, and suddenly his ropes are coming loose. When he's completely loose, he takes a few steps away from the tree and calls out to Janet, who he believes rescued him, but there's nobody there. Finally, the killer, who literally hasn't done anything in the last 50 minutes of this 89-minute movie, jumps down out of the tree and stabs Gary to death in the grass. Why untie him? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that was my question. I think it would have been much more of a dramatic reveal to to leave him tied up. Yeah, but you don't shoot the pest in a cage. You let him run into the woods. Yeah, but but like if she came out and found him stabbed the tree, like Mm -hmm. how much worse does she feel for not coming in and tying him right away? Yeah, but he got pinned. It's (laughs) oh, there you go. That's true. Oh wait, it's on your back. (laughs) See, like I would have slit his throat, so his head was hanging down. So she would have to like reach his head up, lift his head up to make sure he was okay. But uh, if I were to do it, right? Yeah. None of us Allegedly. actually kills people. What? Double kill. <laughs> it's like Jack Palance said. And the sport is in the tracking and the hunting. Yeah, but he he does this like two feet away from the tree after he yeah. lets a guy go. Yeah, it's it's the equivalent of like shooting fish in the barrel. <laughs> yeah, but you or no, or you throw the fish, the fish into a lake and before it can get its bearings, you shoot it. <laughs> get its bearings. <laughs> yeah. It's if someone threw you into the ocean, it would take you a second to figure out which way was up. Okay. From that Same time. is true of fish. <laughs> we cut to Lisa heading up to the art studio where she made a date with Dr. Reynolds, the chemistry professor. Back outside, Janet finds the tree, but no Gary. Weirdly, though, Gary's frat shirt is tied to the tree in his place. Did the killer do this? The Who ki- put the shirt yeah, up? You know what? The killer does a lot of things in this movie that seems like it would take a very long time to set up. Like he cut all the ropes down. And then he tied them all back up to hold a shirt to yep. the tree for some mm-hmm. reason. And then dragged Gary's body somewhere else. Even though it was dead already and there was yeah. no need for that. Do we even find Gary's body again? No. No, I don't think so. What the hell? <laughs> Janet finds his clothes strewn about the yard and notices someone silhouetted against what looks like an observatory dome. Uh, the person is obviously wearing clothes though, so it's not Gary because Gary's clothes are here on the ground. She climbs the stairs to find him, but it doesn't occur to her until too late that she might be following a stranger. She turns to make a run for it, but someone grabs her and yanks her behind a corner, and we cut to Lisa playing piano in her fancy date clothes. Then, suddenly, we're in a basketball court in a gym, and we can hear Wildman rifling through the training room looking for pills. He's completely demolished the room when he finally finds them, and instead of just taking the pill bottles, he dumps them across the desk and then grabs at the pile randomly. (laughs) On his way out of the building, across the basketball court, the lights cut out. He calls out to the darkness, but nobody answers, so he turns the lights back on himself, illuminating a man in the center of the court under the scoreboard, standing exactly like Michael Myers might. Yeah. like Almost like doing an impression of Michael Myers in the middle of the room. 
this is the the best look we've gotten at the killer so far aside from just his face and he doesn't look like he's in great shape he looks like kind of a tubby bruce jenner like he has like a bruce jenner haircut but he's probably 200 pounds heavier than bruce jenner was yeah i mean like i i kept waiting for the reveal of like this guy he looks like an aging athlete yeah. Like like a like a meathead from the from the college yeah. years before. Right. And he's got this big yeah, mushroom bowl but, cut. But but no on. part of this is like particularly frightening. Like it just looks kind of goofy and schlubby. Yeah, because it's just a normal dude. Yeah. Like I almost feel like this would work as like a lonely island sketch where you're waiting for this like really terrifying killer and it's just some fucking weirdo in a bowl cut and mm-hmm. you're just like, Who the fuck is that? I'm not that guy's not gonna kill me, right? That's embarrassing. Well like Anton Sugar from no Yeah, no, Men. not not unlike that. Or he kind of looks like uh, Fester after he gets married in Adam's Family Values. Wild Man charges the stranger full force and is effortlessly tossed to the floor, sending pills scattering all over the gymnasium. I thought those were his teeth for a second. <laughs> yeah, on my first glance, I was like, what did he just do to him? And I backed it up and I was like, oh, he was just holding the pills in his hand like a fucking idiot? Like, put those in your pocket at least if you're not going to take the bottles. He slaps Wildman around the gym and into the weight room where he kicks him hard on the crotch. He drives Wildman hard into some weightlifting equipment and apparently while shooting the scene the actor playing Wildman was actually being strangled and passed out before anybody noticed. Like they actually wrapped one of these wires around his neck on accident. You can't see what I'm doing air quotes. Accident. Yeah. They definitely killed this actor on purpose. He died. No, that's not true. The killer chokes him out for good, and just as Wildman dies, the two-minute timer that came on with the lights buzzes. So, again, I know they were going for a PG rating. Yeah. Uh, I would have liked a better kill in a room full of really heavy objects. When I, when I saw, like, the weights going up, like, like you know, being drawn up by the, I don't know what you call that machine... But I thought, oh, he's going to put his head and then drop the weights on him or something. Yeah. There's there's lots of options. Also, I don't under I don't like the score on the scoreboard not reflecting the total number of kills. Oh, that's true. It's only counting the one kill so far. Yeah. That is weird. I do like that he's considered a guest though. Mm-hmm. Cuz like guest 1 home 0. Mhm. But you're right. It should it should be at least what 3 now. I mean, if you're only counting students, then it should be three. Yeah. Like, if we're not counting the... Because the other was for the, another, an arrival school, so I wouldn't yeah. count that as... So if we're counting one. students here... It's three. It's Gary, Wildman, and who? Janet. Janet, okay. Back at Gamma House, Mark doesn't understand what's taking Wildman so long and apologizes to his prospective customers. In Courtney's room, Radish surprises her with some Irish whiskey to celebrate the end of the term. She tries a sip, but she's disgusted. Radish seems visibly drunk here. He reminds Courtney to please lock her door because psychos exist. She tells him to shut up about it because she doesn't like his pessimistic attitude about murderers being all over the place. She starts complaining about her sexy roommate again, and Radish remembers that he has to do inventory for Coach. On his way out the door, he reminds her again to lock the door. There's a knock at the next door down, which is connected to the same dorm room, and it's Radish again, stopping to tell her what he really thinks about her little foreshadowing here the second door situation yeah yeah like locking one door but not locking the second door That's smart mm. as she moves from one door to another we can see that her roommate lisa has a framed photo of dr reynolds on the dresser that's a little gross you have a pretty face too 
prettier than Lisa. Really. There's, there's, there's more there. Well, I just wanted to tell you that. Lock this door, too. Walking down the hall, Radish talks to himself. That was stupid, kid. I can't believe you said that. Mark gets back to the gymnasium looking for Wildman. We see the demolished office, and then he turns to see pills on the floor. He opens the locker beside the pills and finds Wildman stuffed dead in the locker upside down, which I was not expecting. (laughs) Like his head is at the bottom of the locker and his legs are at the top. Again, a bully stuffed into a locker. I was like, okay, they're being... There, there's some kind of message here. This is all going to tie in to the killer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. When he gets back to his car, the headlights pop up before he reaches it, and he runs the opposite direction. He locks himself in another nearby building, some kind of machinery warehouse, and the killer starts pounding on the locked door. I am outside of the building, and I can't get inside. Mark enters a room labeled Danger, Do Not Enter, and he takes five steps into the room before he understands the sign. The killer, who he just locked outside the building, mind you, stands up from his hiding place inside a barrel in this closet and stabs Mark through the chest. Yeah. What? First of all, I'm going to take back a step. He enters the door that says, like, danger, do not enter. There were two doors. Right. He had two doors he could enter. Both of them said danger, do not enter. (laughs) (laughs) And he he picks one and supposed the other. And then there's a barrel full of killer in there. Yeah. But, like... How long would that guy have been waiting in there if he was outside chasing him? And then the guy could have easily also, I mean, like, let's just for argument's sake, say the killer ran around the other side of the building, got in some other back open door, and happened to pick the correct hallway full of barrels to hide in when the guy could have easily gone through the other danger door. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense at all. Outside the gym, Radish shows up. And he finds a gamma car outside, and the door is open. Aha! Shades of Watergate. Radish also finds the locker room and the training room demolished, and when he opens a locker to put away some helmets, Mark's corpse falls out. He tucks it back into the locker and runs to a nearby payphone. Apparently on the first take, the actor knocked this phone off the wall, and it cracked in half on the counter, so they had to go out to a nearby gas station and either borrow or steal one to complete this scene. But there are plenty of other scenes with phones on walls yeah. in the hallways. But this one looks like a payphone specifically. Yeah, but it doesn't need to. If you no. broke the payphone, just get a fake corded phone yeah. and screw it to the wall. Yeah. Why does it need to be a payphone? Why does it absolutely... You know what happened? There was a payphone in this locker room and they broke it and then they had to replace it. Right. That's, that's probably what true. really happened. Of course, because he's already bothered the sheriff about murders recently, it takes him convincing, and eventually Radish gives up and leaves to make sure Courtney is safe. Lisa continues playing piano, poorly, waiting for the professor. She moves to the window in search of her date, and when she hears someone approaching, she takes the stairs up to the art studio. Radish barrels down the hall of Courtney's dorm and pounds on her door. A hand punches through the door in the opposite direction and yanks his head through the hole to slit his throat on the other side. We see Courtney getting Pepsi at a nearby vending machine. In the art studio, Lisa looks around at all the paintings of nude ladies and slips out of her dress to wrap her naked body in a satin sheet and lay across a couch. Um, I I don't know if these paintings are all supposed to be her or if these are just different students that Dr. Reynolds brings up here to the art studio or if this is just stuff that's in the art studio. Well, 
usually an art studio or a class would hire a model. Yeah. I don't know if they would actually pull from the student mm, body and yeah. pose as models. I'm sure it's just coincidentally a blonde model. Yeah, but all, every single painting is, is equally terrible paintings of a naked blonde woman. Yeah. But now the killer, having killed Radish, runs back to the other side yeah. of the campus. I think there's some time jumps going on. Because this this must be like 45 minutes later. He just killed Radish, and then he's running the whole way across the campus to kill this other person. Okay, and and and, and Courtney has been getting Pepsi this entire time. Yes, she was very thirsty. She drank a few of them at the same machine. But when so when Radish gets killed, he's outside of Courtney's room, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, we're gonna come to that in a okay. second here. Returning to her room, Courtney finds the door open, and Radish's head is smashed through the hole and bleeding. Though for some reason, the killer took him out of the hole in the door, dragged him into the room, and pushed his head back out through the hole the opposite direction before leaving. <laughs> My note here is he's dead as a doornail. Ah, because he basically is one because he's holding the door together. What's a doornail? It's like, uh, it's just kind of a straight angle nail that you use for doors. You don't know what you're talking no, about. No, I don't. <laughs> I just know the expression. <laughs> no, dead I do too, but I've never questioned what a doornail is. Uh, why they're so dead. Yeah. it's a great question. We strive to educate on this podcast That's as well. That's the plan, yeah. Most things that everyone already knows. Yep. We're just learning what you already knew. Courtney is convinced for a moment that this is another tasteless prank. Stop it, Radish. That's not funny. I mean it. Come on, you scared me to death. But slowly it dawns on her that, as she'd been warned, psychos are real. She backs into the hallway, and suddenly the door with radish jammed through it slams shut, implying the killer is still here, and slammed the door, even though at the same time he's killing someone across campus. Courtney dashes down the hall and out of the building. Lisa hears someone in the art studio, and the person blows out all the candles so that she can't see anything. She begins speaking to the visitor as if he were the professor, Back at the dorms, Courtney finds Mitch, the security guy, sleeping in his car, but he's a deep sleeper and doesn't hear her slapping at the driver's side window of his truck. I assume, oh, because they meant- they He's made, drunk. Yeah, they yeah. made a reference to him being drunk. In the art studio, Lisa kisses a hand that touches her shoulder, but then the hand grabs her face and we tilt up to the killer, bringing a knife down over and over as blood sprays out everywhere. Courtney rushes to the same building, apparently aware of their plan for tonight, but she can't find Dr. Reynolds or Lisa. The killer sneaks around behind her, and she hears him close a door. When she opens it to look through, she sees the killer standing there brandishing a knife, and then slams the door to make a run for it. He follows her as slowly as these sort of killers do, and Courtney climbs through a window into the closed cafeteria. As she runs between the tables, she hears the killer break a window behind her, and then he steps across shards of glass on the floor. She moves to the kitchen and arms herself with a knife. She finds a phone, but she can't dial off campus with it, and then we see the electronic dumbwaiter come to life, and inside, the killer rides it down to the kitchen. The problem here being that the killer is taller than four inches, which is how long the tunnel is that these trays are moving along a conveyor belt. So we see his feet come down for the vertical portion of this device, but as soon as he gets to the bottom, he's, he should be stuck. He yeah. can't go forward unless he literally, like turns around and bends his knees so that he's like sliding backwards on his stomach i mean it's also like i don't even know how you're fitting in there like this is the size of a tray like this is a large man he's right. not the size of a, a 
of a cafeteria tray. Yeah, he's larger than a bagel, I would say. <laughs> he doesn't fit in a bread box. Courtney opens a walk-in freezer, and we cut to the killer following her. He stops outside the freezer door and opens the freezer, but as he's looking inside, Courtney pops out of a cabinet, hits him with a pan, and shoves him in to lock the door behind him. Unfortunately, she doesn't think to lock all the doors connected to the same freezer, and the killer emerges from another door to resume the chase. I think that's fair, though. I would not think that a freezer has multiple entrances and exits. Yeah. Yeah. But it might have been neat if she heard Radish's voice in her head say, lock this door too. And then she goes to the other door to lock it, and it's just too late. He bursts out right as she's getting to it. Like he was trying to save her as a ghost. Yeah, but then I would question the one use of voiceover in the whole film. But it'd be like Chris Kattan at the end of 13 Ghosts. Spoiler alert. Oh, God. Or Matthew Lillard at the end of House on Haunted Hill. Spoiler alert. Was it was it 13 Ghosts or, or was it House on Haunted Hill? I don't Chris know. They Kattan. both have a comedic host who, who doesn't, as soon as the house locks up, they're like, ah, we're fucked. We're all going to die. And that person dies first and then saves them as a ghost at the end. Both movies are the exact same <laughs> plot. Spoiler alert. Courtney runs to McWilliams Tower and the killer follows. They both move to the top floor where she started the film. Outside the school, we see the coach pull up in a pickup truck. He shouts for Mitch, even honking his horn a couple times, and gets no response. I guess he's here to take Mitch on that hunting trip from way earlier in the film. Courtney hears the honking truck and screams down for help from the highest window. Coach grabs a bow and one arrow and heads into the tower. When the killer catches up with Courtney, Coach calls up to him with an arrow knocked. Make one more move toward that girl. I swear I'm going to hang your head on my wall. The killer lunges for her anyway, and Coach fires an arrow, and we get a sped-up shot of the killer catching the arrow right out of the air. This was the actor-slash-stuntman's suggestion because he was actually able to do this trick. Coach, having stupidly only brought one arrow along, charges up the stairs toward the killer, who charges down toward him, and Coach is unceremoniously stabbed through with his own arrow, while Courtney screams. I kind of wish this guy had pulled like a Jack Burton where he just caught the arrow and turned around and threw it back down. Yeah. (laughs) But that's not what we do. Just as the killer makes it back to Courtney, he breaks his foot through some rotted wood in the floor and she starts bashing him with a 4x4 she found until he loses the knife and eventually his balance and falls six stories to his death. Same as the sorority sister she mentioned earlier. Courtney comes down the stairs to find the killer on the floor And when he grabs her ankle suddenly, she snatches up the knife and stabs him 12 times, which means this is the R-rated cut and not the X-rated cut, where literally the only difference is that she stabs him 18 times. (laughs) And then, just like the edited for ratings purposes final fight that ended Nighthawks earlier this season, our hero wanders bloodied out to the steps of the building and sits down for a freeze frame as credits roll over her. I thought for sure the sheriff was going to arrive and right see as her she's s- sitting out there, yeah. or, or while she's stabbing the guy, and he was just gonna shoot her, in the shoot head. her, and yeah. that would be like the end of this story. That would be slightly redeeming, yeah, like, a more interesting ending. Like this is so boring. <laughs> yeah, it it really it's like it's just a campus drama movie mm-hmm. with a cameo from a killer. Because he's he's only in like 20 minutes of the movie. But d- isn't a cameo to be a cameo? You have to recognize this person? Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. Um, Honestly, I think the whole message of this film is that there are just crazy killers out there. End of line. Yeah. Not everyone's motivated by something that specifically happened here last year. No, not necessarily. I didn't, but everybody is motivated by something. Yeah. But 
that also might just not come up on the night that the killing is happening. That might be something that you then you figure you don't out months after. Make a movie after, about it. Yeah, agree. No, I don't. I don't disagree. It's like if someone gave me a maze and I sat there trying to do it for forty five minutes and I realized there's no way out of it and they were like, "Oh, it's just a drawing." I was like, "Well, fuck you." I was trying to figure it out. <laughs> Why did I waste all that time trying to figure it out while I was watching your movie if there's actually no solution and it, and the whole point is that there is no solution? And I don't even think that is the whole point. I think they just didn't bother to write one. No, because then they should be hammering that home more. I know that he kind of like uh, Radish says it sort of a couple times. Uh, you know, Well, like, all he says is that psychopaths here. exist. Yeah. He doesn't say yeah. that they are motiveless and that they they often don't shout why they're killing you as they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, but it's just it it's just it's just a worthless movie. There's there's nothing about this that is is good. I think it might be fun if you took the cold open kill out at March College and and the mention of it that Radish makes at the beginning on the way to the chemistry test. So it seems like you're just watching an episode of Dawson's Creek for like 45 minutes and then suddenly a murderer jumps out of a tree and stabs one of the characters to <laughs> death. You're like, wait, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Yes. Wouldn't that kind of improve it a little that bit? That would. I, I've always loved the idea of a film that totally switches genres yeah. halfway through or totally. three quarters of the way through. Yeah. Uh, so yes, that would make it slightly better. <laughs> I tried to write something like that in college where like the beginning of the movie is like these two guys are left in charge of a baby for like the length of a vacation while while their their third friend is gone and it's just about how shitty they are at being dads. Yeah. But then like four days into the vacation, they accidentally kill the baby. Oh. And then, like, it's just, like, it goes from being the, this, like, laugh-a-minute, like, like three men and a baby movie to just being, like, a, holy shit, we killed your kid. Like, the police are involved immediately. And it, there's no, like, cover-up or anything. It's just a somber drama yeah. for the whole rest of the movie. Oh, man. I was going to bring up something like The World's End. Oh, sure. It, yeah, it yeah. It starts off as just, like, old friends getting back together yeah. and going out drinking and then just spirals quickly yeah. into something else. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel that, that way movie. about Parasite, like kind of switching mm. genres. Like yeah, halfway yeah, yeah. through, you're just like, what is this movie? <laughs> yeah. It's great though. I think we all agree it's a great movie. It's worthwhile. Uh, no. Um, there, it really, the, what it has going for it, I would say is Radish. I liked Radish. Sure. Yeah. He's, He's a right. fun, believable character. Um. For some reason, every time they said Radish, for some reason I kept thinking of Fraggles. I was like, why Why does he? his name keep making me think of Fraggles? Uh, because it's close to Fraggles? Uh, no, Radishes are what the Fraggles ate. Yeah. Oh, is it? And I was like, God, how did, how did my brain remember that, <laughs> but not why? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I Googled it. I Googled it turns out uh door nails are those decorative like studs that get like you know in old medieval doors how they have like studs nailed into the door okay, okay. that's what a door nail is so it's like a nail but it's not a real nail it's just like the well kind of a nail. it's it's a nail that's been hammered into a door to i don't know strengthen it or be decorative or whatever but usually what they would do is they would it would hammer it all the way through and then hammer the end that protrudes from the other side over to basically like lock it in place oh, okay uh and so it's it's unusable again you can mm. you could not take this nail out and use it because it's so been it's hammered as over. dead as possible yeah got it that makes sense so there you go dead as a doornail i do think that i might have enjoyed the radish character a little bit more if he just had been like her gay best friend 
and they didn't try to introduce a romantic thing at the end because I just liked everything that they were doing with the character already that like he, he doesn't take shit from anybody. And though, mm-hmm. even though like he seems to have like a negative self-worth, but he also like, he knows when he's right. He tells everybody he's brilliant and uh, he, he has no problem talking to girls or anything like that. But he also like when the jocks are hassling him, he's like, yeah, you're all idiots. What's, what's the big deal? I well, don't understand. And also he's, he does have some respect from some people including the coach yeah who's just like you know i trust you to get this done you know and Uh, if the implication was supposed to be that he's like the unpopular guy like he doesn't do any of the unpopular stuff that these tropey characters do usually like he he didn't seem unpopular well i I chatted with him in the beginning when you have him you know with his like you know he's kind of gangly and he's walking along with a bunch of books and a pocket protector and someone knocks all his shit on the floor you expect that he's going to be the crispin glover of this movie and then you know by the end of the movie it turns out that like he's the one who knows what everything he he understands everyone's motivations he's like the cool one that walks around with whiskey at the end of finals like he's like trying to get people to drink with him yeah but like at every turn he's hanging out with with the jocks and the ladies like right. he's never excluded from the group and even when the jocks are like hey we're gonna beat the shit out of you how dare you give you know my plates to somebody else he's like hey you screwed up sorry like he's basically daring them to beat the crap out of him and they don't apparently because they don't look roughed up later yeah i mean he, much later he looks roughed <laughs> yeah, up I was gonna say, he <laughs> after he gets his head through a door <laughs> But um, but I like the Radish character. I wish he could have stuck around longer. What, the rest of the 10 minutes of the movie that was Yeah, <laughs> I think he should have been, like, the, the final guy. I think that would have been fine. I, w- I would have been cool if they killed Courtney and Radish survived. Yeah. Because he's the only one who's paying attention. Or, like, the, they're both there. They're both holding the freezer doors separately. Yeah. But one of them has to go and get help. Or, like, like they- one of them's like, I gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Yeah, they can't both hold the doors forever. Someone's got to make the chance to go and run. And they're like, wait, these doors lock. Let's both go. <laughs> well, there's a third door? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, thumbs down for me. Yeah, Sorry. it's down. a, it's a yeah. thumbs down. Um, there's really not a lot here. Richard, where do you have it letterboxed? I have it at number 67, uh, which puts it below Happy Birthday to Me, but above Just a Gigolo. I have it at 66 out of what 74 66 out of 74 uh which is very close to where you had it i have it just above permanent vacation and just below home sweet home you guys are never gonna believe this i have it at <laughs> number 67 <laughs> so you and richard have it in the same spot yeah my but mine's below happy birthday to me and above savage harvest <laughs> oh okay that's fair wait above savage harvest oh that's incorrect <laughs> solve that and then we're good <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, uh, this movie was made by people who didn't really care a lot about the movie. They cared more about how much money they would make off of it. And I, I do feel like some attention was paid to the Radish character, but as a result, everyone else is very short shrifted. Uh, I think the wild man character f- almost feels like he's doing an impression of uh, ogre from the revenge of the nerds movies which mm. didn't exist yet but he reminds me a lot of that character like just a blonde version of that character but he also does it in a way that feels more acty like he's pretending to be this jock character and it kind of bothers me in places where it feels especially uh exaggerated um but also he's probably supposed to be like a direct parody of of the 
Belushi Bluto character from Animal right. House. I feel like they were trying to draw from a lot of, obviously, like we mentioned Halloween for the score. Yeah. And Mike Myers and just his slow walk and ominous stance. Yeah. And I guess choice of weapon. But the, the biggest problem is that there's so little of the killer in this movie that almost no one gets to interact with him. Mm-hmm. Aside from like a couple of people interact with him for like a quarter of a second on the way to dying. And even Courtney's experience with this character is, I literally didn't know that people were dying, and then instantly he chased me from this building to the next building, and then I killed him. Yeah. So, like, her experience f- from when she found out there was a killer on campus to when the killer was dead was about eight minutes of her life. And there's no logic to his targets. Like, right, yeah. Because, because again, because he has no motivation. Right. He's just killing for killer. But But even so, even if you're just... I'm going to kill some people. Right. It seems like he took time to consider who to kill. And I don't know why, because there was plenty of opportunity to kill tons of other people. I mean, not tons. There's only so many people on campus. Well, again, I I feel like that's like a a more of a constraint for budget, but there was like the guys who were trying to buy speed there. There were the the Mitch kill Mitch. I mean, Mitch gets away with it. The sheriff never comes back, so he doesn't get to die. Dr. Reynolds doesn't come back, so he doesn't get to die. I mean, maybe that's why Dr. Reynolds was late to meet Lisa. Oh, because he got killed. Because he got killed? Yeah, maybe. It's like, otherwise she got stood up, and I feel bad for her. Yeah, that might have been a good moment if she, like, like she gets a whole Ellie Sadler bit where she's, like, backing away from the killer, and suddenly the professor's arm flops over Mm -hmm. her shoulder, and she's like, oh, thank God. Ah, it's just an arm. Don't, don't see it i put it below a movie where a guy dressed as a mime plays an electric guitar and sings terrible songs the whole time because at least that happened in that movie and also bodies by jake was an awesome killer because he's just screaming (laughs) nonsense into the sky our writer director here was jimmy houston nothing else i recognize from this guy the music was from gary s scott he was a composer for the fame tv series and also freddy's nightmares the elm street tv series he also composed Three Ninjas Knuckle Up and The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Editor John A. O'Connor, he also edited Savage Streets, and he's accredited dialogue editor for Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Cecile Baghdadi played Courtney. This is her only credit. And her screaming was so convincing during the audition process that they asked her to come back and dub the screams of the other actresses in the film. Because they were like, that's a really good scream, and we didn't get that from anyone else. Joel S. Rice played Radish. Looks like he's now a TV producer on a bunch of cable TV holiday rom-coms. Titles I enjoyed were Single All the Way, <laughs> Flip That Romance, and Exploding Sun, <laughs> which is not a rom-com, but Please a sci-fi. Please tell me it's spelled S-O-N. No. <laughs> the, the terrifying Christmas story of a family when, whose child has... Uh, spontaneous combustion disorder they were trying to do a a a knockoff of honey i blew up the kid but he totally misunderstood exploding sun (laughs) it's an alternate title is it the kid or the baby it is a baby but i think the title is kid right i think the title because it's honey honey i shrunk the kids honey Honey, we shrunk ourselves honey we shrunk ourselves supposedly the character name radish was developed by writer director houston as a variation of the word nebish that was how he came to it it's widely understood that Radish served as an inspiration for Jamie Kennedy's Scream character Randy, and in Randy's final scene of that franchise, he even mentions final exams specifically in a list of slashers. Really? Yeah. I because don't, that, I mean, like, 
Randy is the one who's obsessed with serial killers no, and he's I, rattling I, off statistics all the time. I know that. I'm just saying, like, of all the things that you could quote or be inspired by, like, this, this is, movie, this is well, not very inspiring. It's in a list of also not great movies, like Graduation Day. <laughs> it's just like, okay. Yeah, but Graduation sure. Day is better than this. It's, it is better than this. I, w- I agree with you there. But um, it's also terrible in the, in the spectrum of horror films i think graduation day is in the bottom half for sure yeah i i'm, I'm just saying like that, that there, there is the spectrum and this is very low yeah no i it's weird that he that it gets a mention and i think the only reason that it does is because radish was an inspiration for randy i mean i guess it's an inspiration in so much as there's a character that knows about killers because he likes horror movies yeah and kind of knows the rules too like lock this door and lock that other door mm-hmm. deanna robbins played lisa she had recurring roles on soap operas days of our lives in santa barbara sherry willis birch played janet she was literally a secretary at the offices of distributor motion picture marketing and as soon as they learned she was an aspiring actress she was just handed the part of janet without an audition she's back five years later as vivia and killer party and those are her two most famous roles timothy l rayner played the killer whose name is killer He's claimed in interviews that because of his martial arts expertise, he was trusted to wield an actual butcher knife in place of a prop knife on set. He was also the film's credited fight choreographer until the last scene where the killer falls from the top of the building. They like swapped him out with a stuntman when they shot that scene because they were worried that he had no idea what he was talking about, especially after he almost (laughs) strangled their other actor and uh, yeah. They weren't, they weren't confident in his abilities. Sam Kilman played the sheriff. He's also credited as a dialogue coach on the film. Do you feel like any of these people had any dialogue coaching? No. They, every single person had a different accent for the whole movie. Elijah Perry played coach. He was a trucker in Kearney last year. I think he was the one that lost money gambling and threatened to shut the whole operation down. R.C. Nanny played Mitch. He was Chester in Hyperspace, a.k.a. Grimloids. You guys know what hyperspace or gremloids is? No. It looks like a super low budget, like present day parody of Star Wars, where there's like a Darth Vader character walking around in a grocery store. Uh, it looks really bad, and it was retitled Gremloids because it came out in 1984 around the same time Gremlins did, and they wanted people to buy tickets on accident. It looks like trash. Gene Pool played cafeteria worker. <laughs> Gene Pool. Gene Pool <laughs> is named Gene Pool. Gene spelt correctly for the phrase gene pool, but pool spelt incorrectly because there's an E at the end. Uh, Gene pool was also accredited dolly grip on the film. Fritz John Goforth played cafeteria worker, and he was also a key grip on the film. His last name was Goforth. Family of adventurers. Goforth. Or a family of people in the back of the line. You go forth. It comes after go third. Yeah. And before go fifth. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Can I go to bed now? <laughs> yeah, go for it. What's this movie called? Hard Kill? Final exam. Final exam. <laughs> <laughs> Which, apparently, Courtney was the only student who will be attending the final exam. Ah. I think that's everything for final exam. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. 
We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about our Patreon campaign. $5 patrons get a shout-out on the show, a monthly 70s review, and a hand in choosing each month's film. As an added bonus, this year we're starting to fill in some blanks from last year with mini-sode reviews of titles we missed in 1980. Joining now unlocks 22 full-size 70s reviews and 19 mini-sodes. And for November of 1971, $5 patrons are choosing between the following 10 titles for a 50th anniversary review in December. Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Disney's hybrid live-action animated musical starring Angela Lansbury and David Tomlinson about children evacuated from London during the Blitz in World War II and looked after by a witch. A Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick's dystopian crime drama starring Malcolm McDowell about Alexander DeLarge and his gang of droogs engaging in a bit of the old ultraviolence. Diamonds Are Forever, the return of Sean Connery's Bond after the franchise's one-night stand with George Lazenby. Connery is reunited with regular Bond villain Blofeld, played here by Charles Gray, the third actor in as many installments. This would also mark Connery's last canon appearance as the character. Dirty Harry, the first of Clint Eastwood's five-film series about homicide inspector Dirty Harry Callahan, this time facing off against Scorpio, a Zodiac-esque San Francisco serial killer. The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, James Goldstone's mobster comedy starring Jerry Orbach, Lee Taylor Young, and an early pre-Scorsese appearance from Robert De Niro. Harold and Maude, Hal Ashby's dark comedy love story about an affair between a man in his early 20s and a woman in her late 70s, starring Bud Court and Ruth Gordon. The Hospital, Arthur Hiller's satirical dramedy based on a script by Patty Chayefsky, starring George C. Scott, Diana Rigg, and Barnard Hughes, about a hospital chief of staff whose life and job are falling apart. Mary Queen of Scots, Charles Jarrett's biopic on Mary Stuart, Queen of Scotland, Starring Vanessa Redgrave, Glenda Jackson, Timothy Dalton, Nigel Davenport, Patrick McGowan, Trevor Howard, and Ian Holm. It's an incredible cast. Minnie and Moskowitz, John Cassavetti's romantic comedy drama starring Gina Rollins and Seymour Cassell as the title characters. And Straw Dogs, Sam Peckinpah's psychological thriller about a young couple attacked in an isolated farmhouse and driven to violent vengeance starring Dustin Hoffman and Susan George each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this December. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Sea Wolves, which IMDb describes like so. During World War II, the British must attack a German ship, but it's safe in neutral Goa. As a result, they send civilians, former soldiers, who are about 60 years old. Nice. That's the end of the description on IMDb. I've been looking forward to this since last year yeah. when I found out... It wouldn't be that year. Yeah, because it came out in 1980 in the UK, but 1981 here. We leave you now with a trailer for The Sea Wolves. Forty-six freighters sunk by German submarines in the Indian Ocean in the past month. Look, damn it, we've got to get rid of that transmitter. Do you know how many lives depend on supplies that are lying at the bottom of the Indian Ocean? I think our first priority is to find whoever heads the spy ring. What do you want, senor? I want you to use your influence to persuade the governor to have a reception. 
Among the invited guests will be every port official from Marmagoa. Are you expecting my men to volunteer without having the faintest idea what they're volunteering for? Right. Unfortunately, Bill, there'll be no pay in it. No pensions if anyone's killed or wounded. And no credit. It all sounds unbelievably attractive to me. Love it. Now, those of you who are selected will leave in about seven days. What are you doing? Just toning up. You'll be gone for two weeks. Mr. Melbourne. <clears throat> are you all right? Get out! I think it's best if you tell your wives you've been ordered up to ranch if... Going to ranching. Oh, don't be ridiculous. It's another woman, isn't it? We still have that date. That is the best idea I've heard all day. We're actually stealing an entire ship, and all I get is five light horse for crew plus three hired Laskers. We are not stealing the Queen Mary. Then you bring the others across by train to coach in. And for a grand finale, we sail right into Marmagoa Harbor and blow up everything in sight. How long have you got on those mines? Couple of minutes, maybe. Somebody what the hell's gone wrong? 